Cool, so welcome once again to another Coffee and Heroes podcast. Um, delighted that this is going to be a special one-off uh, podcast. We we always go through the reviews, the previews. We, we have a clear love for this industry, so it's absolutely wonderful when you get the opportunity to actually talk to the creative people behind uh, the comics industry. Uh, so your host is always Alan, co-owner of Coffee and Heroes. I'm joined by... Vicky. Also co-owner. Also delighted to be joined by... Keith. Keith, as always, and also Roddy here. And we have one extra special guest on top of that as well. One final hello, and I'm delighted to say we are joined by the one and only Chip Sadarsky. Hey, what's up? So I'm going to really embarrass him now because I've written this small introduction. Uh, He might hang up as soon as I read this out because I sound sound like such a, a blushing fan, but... So, Chip Zdarsky is a name that should be familiar to all comic book fans. A funny, engaging online persona mixed with a writer-artist responsible for quality, diverse AAA titles. You may know him as the guy from Sex Criminals, you know, the one who answers the sex questions at the back of the issue. And other quality indie titles such as The White Trees, Captara and Jughead. More recently, you may know him as the writer, who in this guy's humble opinion was the best writer of 2019. And in the year of Jonathan Hickman's House of Power, House of Ten and Powers of Ten, Tom Keane's epic Batman and Superman titles, Donny Kate's kick-ass Venom run, Grant Morrison's Green Lantern, and Jason Aaron's seminal Thor run coming to a conclusion, I think that's no small statement. He has written a title that proved to be a better celebration of 80 years of Marvel history than Marvel 1000 in the excellent Invaders maxi-series. He somehow combed down six decades of everyone's favourite web-slinger into arguably the title of the year in Spider-Man Life Story. And that's all without mentioning his ongoing Daredevil run that is consistently among our picks of the week, month and year. All of this, and he finally brought back Sex Criminals for its final arc. He is the one and only Chip Zdarsky, and thank you so much for joining us. Oh my god. <laughs> <laughs> so uh yeah, that's a thing. <laughs> Took me three minutes. Oh <laughs> and he's away. <laughs> I think you might have to invite him back, Keith. He really is gone. Wow. Play <laughs> to the cause. I'm so sorry. <laughs> that is commitment to the cause right there. <laughs> No, no, I, my email went off and I went to close the email and then uh, I just shut everything down apparently. Well, as with all comedy, it's all about timing. Uh, yeah, um, timing. So yeah, so how are you dealing with the worldwide lockdown and then working on lots of projects? Are you watching lots of TV and movies? Are you playing video games? Are you Ooh. drinking away the day? I'm kind of just seeing projects disappear or stop, which is uh, unfortunate. I had like three or four uh, creator-owned books that were starting up. Uh, artists were starting on them, and um, and then this hit. And so advances kind of dried up, and knowing when or where things are going to get published uh, is a little tricky. So, yeah, the, the first couple of weeks were a lot of kind of negotiating and figuring out uh, kind of a way forward on stuff like that. I, I had a few Marvel books um, get put off to the side until all this is over. So Daredevil's kind of the main gig. So yeah, I've been worrying, staring at walls and worrying about stuff. Uh, projects have kind of popped up, which is nice, but uh, yeah, yeah. It's not, it's not as much downtime as it is. Um, it's taking me longer to write scripts like writing a script where people are telling jokes is a little tricky right now. And uh, writing uh, scripts where people are hugging 
or outside. <laughs> it's weird. Those legendary places, those legendary things. Yeah, yeah, those, those, those days gone past. <laughs> so, yeah, you know, I think like anyone, there's some good days and bad days, but uh, trying to figure out a way forward. And uh, I just want someone to put me to sleep and then wake me up when it's over. I don't know if you have that instinct as well. I just kind of want to like be like a bear and just hibernate for the rest of this. And then someone wakes me up and everyone's robots with robot lungs and things are fine. I, I think you're working on a comic right there. Yeah, maybe. <laughs> um, so yeah, so just start at the beginning, I suppose. So why comics? What What attracted you to the medium? I think like most of us, I grew up reading them. As a kid, they were like my primary form of entertainment, like going to the comic shop with like 20 bucks in your pocket was uh, was always the highlight of my week. Uh, I learned to read on comics and, uh, and and just kind of grew up loving them. And I never really intended to be a comic creator. Like I, I liked making them, but uh, by the time I went to college, uh, I went for illustration and to kind of beat that out of me a little bit. And, and most of the guys that I went through that program with wanted to be comic artists. And then the teachers were like, no, no comics. You do illustrations for newspapers and magazines. That's what we're here for. Um, so really, I just kind of followed comics while I was in school and after school and uh, uh, just started kind of doing them for myself and for my buddies, just for laughs. And yeah, about 10 years of kind of doing that. And kind of next thing you, you know, I turned around. I'm like, oh, shit, I got a career in comics. That's weird <laughs> how that happened. Because <laughs> I was a newspaper man. Like, I spent 12, 13 years working for newspapers and just kind of doing comics on the side as I worked at the newspapers and eventually kind of started doing comics for the newspapers as well. And, yeah, yeah, it, it's, it's, it's very strange to kind of – find yourself transitioning from one dying print industry to another <laughs> <laughs> and have that and have that somehow be a success. What was your, uh, what was your role in newspapers, Chip? So it started off, um, I, I would do uh, freelance illustration. So someone write an article, I do the art that goes with it. Um, pretty forgettable stuff really. And uh, I, I ended up getting a part-time gig at a Canadian paper where I was uh infographics so charts maps diagrams i did a lot of stock charts like like that was just kind of my gig and i do that like a couple days a week and then the rest of the time i would do freelance illustration and my own little comics but uh over time i realized at the newspaper that uh they need to fill those pages every day like it's a lot of content and because I could draw and write, I started to pitch them things that I drew and wrote, figuring that would make their lives easier. And uh, and they, they took me up on it. And so I started doing kind of more fun, funny stuff for them, kind of jokey infographics to start with, and then transitioned to doing kind of more comics for them. I was an advice columnist. <laughs> I did a column for them called Extremely Bad Advice, in which I would just give bad advice to readers uh, with like kind of like airline manual drawings that I would do like step by step. I did that for like five years and, uh, you know, had a loyal fan base doing that. Um, I kind of eventually just became the newspaper's uh, mascot. Like whenever they had something weird 
to cover. They would send me. And I would do comics or videos. I ran for mayor of Toronto in 2010 uh, for the newspaper just to like figure out a new way to cover it. So I would do all these like media appearances and you know my fake campaign. Um, yeah, you know the air shows in town. They would put me in a in a fighter jet and I'd do a story on that. Like it was a fun gig, and I would do videos for them by the end. And uh, uh, yeah, it just kind of blossomed into a thing where my role was very ill-defined. I think the the title I gave myself was graphic columnist. And uh, and yeah. Yeah, it was it was a great gig, and by the time I got it to be a great gig, comics kind of started up for me, and I had to make a choice between newspapers and comics, and uh, and yeah, comics won out just because again, it's like a childhood passion. So when Sex Criminals hit, I was like, I did both for a year. I like I drew Sex Criminals and worked full time at a newspaper for a year, um, which was insane. I can't even imagine doing that again. And uh, and at some point, I was like. I'm going to have to quit one of these and uh, yeah, decided to go full in on comics. Um, so did you feel like when you were in the newspapers, did you learn a lot of stuff that you kind of brought over to comics or cause you kind of said you were working on this comics at the side. Yeah. Yeah, no, it's uh, it was invaluable. Like the newspaper job, I probably wouldn't be doing comics if it wasn't for that. The, the big thing it taught me was um, brevity. Like, I remember the first thing I wrote for the newspaper, um, I just crammed it full of jokes, and it was super dense. And there was this one editor there who looked at it, and he was like, what the fuck are you doing? Like, this is a newspaper. Like, you expect someone to sit down and, like, read all of this to get to your little jokes? Like, there's no way. And he went through, and he cut, and, you know, I'd fight him on things. And um, by the end, I realized, oh, he's right. Like, like uh there's not a lot of space and there's not, not a lot of time to keep someone's attention. So that job taught me to, um, to really condense your thoughts as much as you can, which translates really well to comics because there's only so much space. Like, you know, comic writers, when they're starting out, their biggest hurdle is they write too much. They're in love with their own words, their prose. They don't trust the artist to deliver the message. Um, even if you look at the original Marvel books, like Stan and Jack and Ditko, like Stan Lee would describe what was happening in the panel, <laughs> even though like the art clearly showed it. Uh, and then so yeah, newspapers taught me to not do that. And, uh, and it taught me to work under a deadline because, you know, every day, like I get an assignment usually around one, two in the afternoon at the paper to write and draw a thing. And by six o'clock, it's got to go. It's got to be at the printer. Um, so there's no there's no blowing a deadline there because the page has to have something on it. Uh, and, and also I got to use a bunch of different computer programs and uh, try a lot of different styles, like in sex criminals, um, whenever there's a background gag, uh, like a poster, like they're done in a different style. And that's because they're all from my advice column. Like I have, a, I have giant folders of like hundreds of images I drew for that. So I usually just go through, try and find things. I redraw bits and kind of use them for the background gags. Like, so yeah, the paper, yeah. Yeah, it was, it was the best job. I actually miss it a lot. Usually when something big's happening, especially in Canada, like an election, like um, I, I always have to fight the instinct to quit comics and go back to the newspaper. <laughs> or run for mayor again. 
Portland for Mayher again, yeah. <laughs> uh, deadlines better in comics or better in newspaper? I mean, the deadline in the newspaper is uh, it's daily and it's intense. But you have a thing in the back of your head where it's like, okay, if this sucks, it's gone in a day. Like, like there's there was like the phrase like, um, like uh, like yesterday's newspaper is tomorrow's bird liner for a cage. <laughs> like, like no one no one remembers really. At least at the point when it was mostly a physical product. Um, obviously, something online can haunt you forever, but. Uh, but yeah, the, the, those deadlines were really intense. Um, comic deadlines are fine as long as you um, train yourself to accept that you have to do a page a day to hit that deadline. Like it's hard at the beginning. Like if you finish an, an issue of drawing something, uh, you, you tend to you know maybe take a couple of days on a page when you start out the next issue and you know you're you're you know get into the finer details and you know by day thirty you're like oh shit I got to do two pages a day now <laughs> like it, it's it's amazing how the time disappears if you don't have the structure in place to uh, to to keep it all straight yeah. yeah yeah but but there's nothing. There's nothing more exciting than being at a newspaper when someone actually says "stop the presses." <laughs> like I, I, I miss stuff like that where like people are running through a newsroom because there's like a huge error or you know ch news has changed. Um, yeah, I've I've had wild anxiety. From, yeah. I can't oh, imagine that happens to Marvel. No, no. There, there was this one night at the newspaper. It was like a, it was a federal election in Canada, and I was in charge of. We had like a two page spread, which was the map of Canada with all the writings. And as the results came in, I'd set up the map so I could, I could change them to the party color that won. And, uh, but the deadlines were so early and the results were coming in late and sporadic that, uh, I couldn't, like I had nothing to do for like hours. And then when the time crunch came, I'm, I'm slowly turning these into the colors. People are yelling at me cause they got to send it to the printer. And I remember, like the early edition went and it was a two page spread of Canada where there's 300 writings and like five of them were filled in. <laughs> it was like, it was the most embarrassing thing that ever happened to me. And like those kind of, you know, I look kind of fondly on it now at the time it was uh, probably the most uh, anxiety I've ever had in my life. <laughs> I've never quite had that with comics. Like we, we pushed deadlines, you know, when the colors are running late or the art's coming in late. Um, but I'm kind of lucky being the writer because my job is done. Like I'm, I'm, I'm pretty good with the deadline. If I blow a deadline by a day, it's unfortunate. It means the editor has less time to get it to the uh, artist, but, um, but it's not going to the printer at that point. You know, we still got a month and a half before it goes to the printer. So usually the pressure is off me. I feel bad for the colorist and the letterer cause they're like the final stage of production. And they're the ones that like have to turn around an issue in a weekend. Yeah, that yeah. sucks. <laughs> so, uh, chat me a little bit about uh, about sex criminals. Um, how did that that partnership, that friendship between yourself and that fraction come about? That would end up leading to what turned out to be a breakout hit. Yeah, it was strange. Like we probably met online around two thousand, two thousand one. Um, it was on the Warren Ellis forum. I don't know if any of you were ever on that back in the day. Uh, it was a great 
spot online for uh, comic creators and fans to kind of interact. And during that period, you could kind of see the transition of some of those fans into comic creators because the people that posted there regularly were really into comics and for the most part wanted to write or draw them. And, uh, you know, uh, Kieran and Jamie, you know, came from there, you know, Sam Humphreys, Kelly Sue, Matt. Um, there were so many creators that were kind of, we all kind of met there and started our comic career at that point. Um, so I, I, I instantly liked Matt. Matt was like a fun personality, super funny. Um, we clearly clicked just in our jokes on that message board. And, uh, and I loved his stuff. Like when he started doing comics, I loved them. And when I did my little comics, he, he enjoyed them. And so we kind of maintained a relationship after that on various message boards. Uh, and then, yeah, for the five, six years ago now, um, we did, uh, we worked together on an, an animated video. We were both fans of the same radio show and, uh, they're doing the pledge drive and a Toronto band named fucked up did a song and, um, Matt kind of wrote the script and directed this animated video that I did the, um, uh, the illustrations for, and, and it turned out well, and we worked well together and I always had that in the back of my head, like, Oh, you know, we, we could actually do something. And, uh, around that time, at the newspaper, um, they sent me, I'm in Toronto, they sent me to Ottawa to cover a boxing match between um, uh, a member of parliament named Justin Trudeau <laughs> and a Canadian senator named Patrick Brazil. And uh, it was a charity thing. Brazil was like this kind of big, meaty, tough guy. And, uh, and Trudeau was kind of the, kind of the fancy boy, like the ex-drama teacher who decided to, you know, get into politics. And so a lot of people there were kind of expecting him to lose. And uh, so I was like ringside and covering it, doing sketches. And uh, and Trudeau won. He beat up this Canadian senator. And everyone was stunned. And at that moment, the whole room was just like, oh, he's going to be prime minister. Like, you just knew it. Like, not that Canadian politics basically comes down to you beat someone up, you become prime minister. But you could tell, like, that was his last stumbling block that people kind of thought he was a wimp. And once he kind of proved he wasn't, it was like, oh, yeah, this guy's going to run the country. And so I was covering it. And it was just electrifying. And I had this, like, um, this real jolt from it. And uh, I stayed up all night kind of working on the comic and uh, and on the train ride coming back to Toronto, I was still awake. I'd been awake for like 24 hours. And I just, I remember I just emailed Matt. I was just like, I was like, we should do something. Like, you know, I got this energy. I'm just like, like, fuck it. Like, do you want to do a comic together? Like we should do like a fantasy comic. Um, this is before everyone was doing fantasy comics. And, uh, my idea was like our friend Ed Brubaker, who everyone knows is like the noir guy, but he's a huge Lord of the Rings nerd. And Matt and I don't care for it. And we thought it'd be really funny to do a fantasy book, <laughs> not caring about fantasy. Um, but but Matt was like, mm, I got a different idea. And then he kind of pitched the basic sex criminals idea to me while I was on the train. And I loved it. I'm like, oh, that's a great idea. And then I had a question and he had an answer. And then all of a sudden I, I was proposing ideas. He was proposing ideas. 
So on that train trip, like four hours, we kind of worked out the characters and a lot of the kind of the main storyline of the book um, with the realization that um, if we actually did this, no one would buy it. Like Image was looking at Matt to do stuff for them. And so Matt pitched it to them and they said yes. And we were just like, why would they say yes to this? Like it makes no sense. Because the, the whole time when we were working on the first couple issues, we're like, oh, this is going to be a book for us and literally no one else. And uh, yeah, we were wrong. With Sex Criminals, was it always going to be a case of, did you originally have a plan as like a six issue mini, that kind of thing? Or was there always a longer story there to be told? The, the plan, like legitimately, we thought we'd be canceled by issue three. Like we, we had the kind of the first story worked out, like the five issues. Um, but so much had changed even from when we solicited it to when we created it. Like the solicitation was like, dick joke, fuck sex joke, woo. It's called <laughs> sex criminal, isn't that weird? And then like we started working on it and we're like, oh, it's actually about relationships. And like um, we started to fall in love with the characters and realize there's a bigger story here. So we were like, well, no one's going to buy this. Like anyone who looked at, at the solicitation in previews, um, if they bought it based on that, they'd be sorely disappointed because it was about like a uh, sexual awakening and it wasn't just like a dick joke book. Nobody who wants a book about sexual awakenings and relationships would pick up a book called sex criminals with that description from the preview. So like, as far as we could see, we had everything kind of against us um, that we had. That makes it sound like somebody did that to us. We did it to ourselves. Like <laughs> everything was against us. We put it in front of us. Um, and so, yeah, so we, we, we generally didn't think it would last that long. And uh, like the day issue one came out, we were like, oh, okay. Like maybe we can keep going with this. Um, and yeah, Matt's really great at kind of, bringing in new characters and um, telling stories about kind of bigger issues. So, uh, so yeah, it kind of issue six on was kind of more about a bigger story than issue one to five was, I'd say. Cool. Did you find it hard jumping back into it? You know, with comics, like there's been a few comics that have kind of took long breaks. Did you find it hard to jump back into it when the time came? Um, maybe about a week, a week of it was, was hard. Like, cause the big issue was like the break was kind of, it wasn't intended to be a long break. I think it was the kind of thing where there wasn't a lot of pressure on us. So like the scripts would come in, you know, maybe a month or two late. And then I'd be like, I'd be working on it, but like writing as well. And that would take a long time. And, um, Matt tends to deliver a script when he absolutely has to. And so as long as I was working on the drawing, he wouldn't be working on the next script. And so that really didn't make me want need to finish the script in a way. Um, so we were both kind of each other's enemies because of that. Cause it's like, Oh, he's not done drawing. Why would I write a script? And I'm like, well, he's not done with the next script. Why would I finish drawing? Um, so it's funny when we were coming, when we decided to solicit and come back, um, you know, Matt was like, oh, maybe we could like 
you know, add in like a skip month here, you know, for, you know, tight on time. Like, no, like we need that deadline. Like we need to like stick to it. And I, I was drawing a page, page and a half a day up until the pandemic, really. Um, everything kind of, I, I've gotten faster at it. Like I found coming back the first week was really hard, but once I, once I set some parameters for myself, uh, it came really quickly. Like my thing before all this was, um, I would be at the drawing table around six thirty seven in the morning and I would just start drawing a page and I wouldn't eat breakfast until I was done the page. <laughs> Not the best food as a reward system, um, but it worked. You know, some days if the page is easy, three hours, I'm good. If the page is hard, it'd be about five hours, but that's, not looking at email, not doing anything, no YouTube videos, no Twitter, just just drawing. Um, it was a good rhythm to get into, and I'm I'm kind of out of it right now, unfortunately, just with uh, the world. But uh, but yeah, yeah, it, it, it's strange. It, it took a while to get back into it, but I ended up being faster than I've probably ever been on it, which is nice. I've got two more issues to draw. Cool. Well, well, we hope you get them done. Um, <laughs> yeah, me too. Well. I was gonna say, take your mind back, like five, six weeks ago. You know, from from the time the very first sex criminals came out to the pre-coronavirus landscape. Do you think <laughs> much has changed in the comic comics industry? Do you think the independent sort of marketplace is different? Yeah, I mean, it's a long period of time. Weirdly, I mean, we were part of kind of an image boom. Like Saga came out before us, and then when we debuted, and then it was like Bitch Planet, Wicked and Divine, East um, of West. Yeah, East I, of West, I always yeah, refer to that year as like an image golden period, just burst of creativity. Yeah, yeah, and it was it was wild to kind of be a part of that. But a few things happened. One, um, we just didn't put out the books quickly enough, on time, whatever. Um, which is a lot of times that's just a problem with um, success where uh, when you have a, a hit, all of a sudden you don't actually need to work as fast. <laughs> it's almost like you've proven yourself. It's the bills are paid. <laughs> it's part of it. Like, uh, you know, on, on most comics, you're like, well, you deliver the page, you get paid you pay your bill and then you got to get more work and keep doing it. But like, you know, the first year of sex criminals, like, um, the money was really good. And so, and I think with a lot of those image books, like the money was really good, especially with issue ones and issue twos. Um, and then people just start thinking about the money and they're just like, kind of like thinking about their multimedia deals or whatever. Like there were, there were a few books that came out after that period where, I remember saying to friends, these teams are having image issue two problems before issue one comes out. Like they're all wrapped up in the fact that it's going to be a success and they're going to have all this money and they're just like, they're not doing the work and they're not as invested in the work itself. I think a lot of that kind of happened around that, that time period. And sometimes the pressure gets too much. Like I think with sex criminals, we had a big gap between issue five and six. And I think Matt had a lot of pressure on him because at that point we were like, number one New York Times, Time Magazine, Comic of the Year. Like, it was a wild 
few months and then all of a sudden you got to like follow that up and uh, so issue six took a while as a result and and for me as well i'm just like oh like shit we got to maintain this like that's hard um yeah so i mean that period is definitely kind of a weird golden age for sure of like kind of creator own stuff and it was it was mostly people coming from marvel to image um to to do that work you know there were a few dc people but really it was a kind of a big marvel to image push and then yeah yeah people just weren't following through on things you know us included like we could have put out issues quicker um if we just kind of pushed ourselves to do that um but we were also thinking like well it's the collections that are kind of more important because those are the things that are going to be on the bookshelves forever and those are the things that people will buy in like five ten years so the the single issues didn't feel as imperative to like get them out super quickly people always refer to watchmen about that like no one remembers that watchmen was late which is you know a real egotistical thing to <laughs> compare yourself to but but it's true like um, it's the collected edition that lives forever. And so single issues, they're late, they're early. Like no one's going to look back fondly five years from now and go, wow, it was amazing. You know, that book came out, you know, every three weeks. No, it, that doesn't matter at that point. But that being said, it created problems. Like everyone, for the most part, was late. Wicked and Divine was great. Like they stayed on schedule, like to their physical detriment, I think. Um, and then, then they reap the rewards of it. Like I think they built their fan base a lot uh, quicker and, and steadily over time. Um, so yeah, yeah, there were there were mistakes made. So now it's kind of a tricky thing because um, image books, independent books, don't sell quite what they were at that time. Like Undiscovered Country launched big, which is which is wonderful because it signifies maybe that could change. But um, I think a lot of speculators used to buy the books as well, again, massive amounts, thinking it could be the next Walking Dead. And then even when it did become a TV show, they didn't see a big return on their investment. So, so I think the speculation is being cut out of the market a little bit now, um, which ultimately is good, but also it, it kind of floats the industry in a lot of ways. So, so that's kind of tricky too. Yeah, it'll be interesting to see what happens kind of post-coronavirus and uh, and how the market responds to new product and the idea of comics as an investment, you know. I mean, with that uh, with that big bang at, at Image, why was the why Marvel? Why was the House of Ideas your next your next stop? Uh, like anything, it was kind of an accident. Um, the uh, at some point after the first year of sex criminals uh an editor at marvel reached out to me will moss and he basically said um he bought one of my books in like 2003 like i did an all ages kids comic called monster cops back then that i wrote andrew and he he bought it back then apparently and he enjoyed it and he realized i could write as well and so he he pitched me a thing. It was like a two-page gag strip for uh, Original Sins anthology. Um, and so he's like, "Yeah, you can do whatever you want." I'm like, okay, all right. Um, 
two pages. So I'll put like 16 panels in each page and I'll draw every Marvel character I can think of. Cause it was my only shot, right? Like, uh, my assumption is always that this is the only time I'm going to get to do this. So I kind of put my all into those two pages and I, I wrote it, drew it, colored it. Uh, I think I even lettered it and, uh, and I delivered it ahead of time to the best job I could. And, uh, and yeah, and he loved it. And, um, it led to kind of some cover gigs, which I would always try to go above and beyond on them. And then, uh, the guardians of the galaxy movie came out. And the editor called me again. He's like, hey, did you see the new movie? I'm like, I'm like, yeah, yeah, it was great. He's like, did you stay past the credits? I'm like, yeah. He's like, Howard the Duck was in there. I'm like, yeah, it was cool. He's like, I think that means we can pitch a Howard the Duck book to the higher ups. <laughs> That's the way it works, right? Like, I had no idea. Because, um, you know, Marvel films, like, they didn't tell them they're going to put Howard the Duck in the movie. Like, everyone found out when it came out. And so they were like, do you want to pitch this? I'm like, yeah, of course. And so I wrote the pitch and we had phone calls and, uh, and I kind of treated it similar to the previous gig where, you know, issue one, I had Spider-Man and She-Hulk in there. I'm just like, I, I got to write Spider-Man at least once. This is my only chance in this Howard the Duck book. And, uh, and yeah, it was a fun gig. Like it was the first time I'd ever written for somebody else to draw. And Joe Canonis was amazing. Uh, the collaborator and and yeah it was just a ton of fun so it just kind of kept going and then marvel would offer me stuff and i'd usually say no because i was doing sex criminals as well and like it kind of had to be something that i knew i really wanted to do to say yes to and eventually i started to say yes to a few things and uh it really helped because when um when there were like gaps in sex criminals with the scripts like i i had work uh, going. Um, so that was great. And I really enjoyed the process. And so next thing I knew I was a comic writer. Uh, it's weird. It all feels like an accident. Like that's the thing. It's me basically just me doing things that I enjoy and hopefully doing them well enough and doing them on time. So I get to do more of those things. And, uh, yeah, it seems to have worked out because yeah, I think it went, I think it went Howard the Duck, Star Lord, spectacular spider-man then uh and then just kind of kept going from there and i think they offered me spider-man because i kept turning down stuff and it's like <laughs> we know what he'll say yes to yeah and they're like what's his deal why is he saying no to all this stuff like is he secretly really good <laughs> like, <laughs> like i tricked them savvy marketing right there yeah um, exactly I mean, when you were growing up, obviously you were saying you were a were a big comic fan. Were you a Marvel guy? Were you a DC guy? Were you an indie guy? Were you a bit of everything? Yeah, I mean, I was primarily Marvel. And um, what I did was I had a younger brother. He was about three years younger than me. And so I convinced him to be a DC guy. So he'd buy all the DC books so I could still read them. <laughs> uh, and then, to make matters worse... Uh, at one point, I told him he wasn't taking good enough care of his comics, and they sh they'd be, could be worth a lot of money, so I should look after them. <laughs> so it's the perfect scam. I got my little brother to buy the books, and then uh, I kept them in my room for safekeeping. So yeah, so it was primarily Marvel, but um, I definitely dipped into the DC stuff. I love like Batman, Flash. Those are the big ones for me over there. Uh, but yeah, it was Marvel 
kind of all the way through in high school uh, when Vertigo launched, I got into a lot of the Vertigo books. And uh, and then when I went to college, I stopped collecting because I couldn't afford anything. So on the other end of college, I kind of dipped more into like Drown and Quarterly, Fantagraphics stuff, more independent. But I would kind of follow the Marvel stuff, almost like fantasy football. Like I'd, I'd read all the blogs. I, I knew exactly what was happening in all the Marvel books. Um I know who the creators were. I kind of followed the storylines without actually reading the books, which is kind of weird. And then when my friends started writing them, uh, that's when I kind of more actively started collecting again. Very cool. Very cool. I had uh, I had a very similar, uh, I, I wouldn't call it a scam, a deal with my younger brother. Uh, <laughs> I wouldn't call it a scam. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. But, uh, authorities are listening. Yeah, yeah. But uh, somehow, somehow a lot of his, uh, his ghostwriter books and stuff have ended up in my long boxes. I don't know how that happens. And then, yeah, also, you know, also happened to know a guy that, that runs a fantastic comic store in Belfast who happens to be a DC guy and is always going, you need to read this. <laughs> <laughs> there you go. Well, it's interesting. Don't tell Matt this, but I I was a died in the wool DC guy. But when it comes to Marvel stuff, I I read it much more now. But back then, I was very selective with what I bought, and I I usually went for the characters on the fringes. So it, it's terrible to call Daredevil a fringe character. But when Mark Wade and Samley was on, it was a big fan. But the run I was most into was Hawkeye, or oh, yeah. Hawk Guy, which was just yeah. a phenomenal run. Um, so you know, an entire issue from the point of view of a dog. I mean, just yeah. wonderful stuff. Um, yeah, no, it's it's brilliant. It's it's one of those funny things where, you know, it's kind of the tail end of Matt's time at Marvel too. Like, he kind of had the the career arc that you expect of any creator there. You know, he did like the Punisher, you know, books, and then Iron Man, and then kind of made his way up, and then he was doing the big crossover. And then he kind of, that's the burnout. Like you do the crossover and then it drops. And then they gave him Hawkeye, which is like, it's a joke, <laughs> right? And then he turned into the best book ever. That, you know, sold a kajillion copies and it's amazing. And that was his exit from Marvel, which is like, has there ever been a better just straight exit from Marvel? Like <laughs> take their like third tier character, make it like the best book going and then go do sex criminals. <laughs> like that's yeah. yeah he's, that's, he's really, that's what you have to live up to. Yeah, no, I know. I think about it every day. <laughs> yeah, at one point Marvel offered me Hawkeye, and I was like, "There's no how. <laughs> Are you kidding? Like, there's no way." Well, who uh, you know, thinking about that, Chip, who would be, who would be your Matt Fraction Hawkeye? You know, if that was the case, which which would your Marvel character of choice be in order to to, to make that maneuver? Oh man, I don't even know. Like every once in a while, I have a conversation with like editor Marvel, and I'll just be like, just give me like the names of like the characters you think you can't do anything with. But it, it's I think it's harder and harder to take chances on those kind of characters. They should be, but uh, but retailers are really stingy with those orders, and it's hard to kind of get the word of mouth out enough to kind of hit those levels again so yeah i don't know i don't know I, th- I think about it a lot like which characters would be it for me but um i kind of was hoping namor would be that and i kept pitching a namor book and everyone kept saying namor books don't sell and then they kind of got me to turn it into the invaders i'm like how does an invaders book sell I'm like all right <laughs> uh so speaking of invaders so you get 
So sort of maybe like this year, you're working with all all these amazing artists. Mm -hmm. You know, you've got Butch Geis, Carlos Magno, uh, Mark Bagley, um, also Marco Cicchetto on Daredevil, and then Julian T Tedesto's amazing uh, covers. The best. Um, so like you started as an artist. Yeah. What have... Is there anything you've learned moving over to the writing side that helps you communicate better? Is there anything, have you grown like a deeper understanding of being an artist in comic books? I think, um, like I came into it with a great degree of guilt. Like, as you feel bad kind of writing descriptions that you know it's going to take them a long time to draw it. And you know it just took you like five seconds to write it. Like, that's a very weird feeling and you kind of have to like, you have to get used to that level of guilt, you know? Um, I think instinctually I work well with artists because I'm an artist. Like usually I, ha I have a visual in my head as I'm writing. Um, so I know it's possible. Like whatever I'm giving them, I know it's possible. I'm not like, you know, I've, I've heard horror stories of like writers <laughs> writing scenes where like, there's just no way to place the characters in the scene and have their dialogue work and have it make sense. But they haven't thought that they're just like cranking out the dialogue and the character positions, but it doesn't make any sense. Uh, so I think, I think I'm pretty good at that. The unfortunate part is knowing just enough about art means I usually have notes. <laughs> um, uh, whereas I think a writer who doesn't have a lot of uh, artistic sense will just get a page and go, great. Whereas I get a page, I'm like, mm, shouldn't the character be more doing like this? And shouldn't you, you know, frame it like this? And um, so depending on the artist, like I'll have, I could have a lot of notes at the layout stage, like, cause that's the important part in storytelling. Um, there, there are, you know, Butch Geis, no notes. Like maybe I, I asked for an expression to change slightly. Um, because he's a master, like the layouts are perfect. Um, but, but maybe a younger artist, you know, I've done a few kind of one-off issues with like kind of new talent. And that's like having a second job because you kind of got to go through every panel and kind of explain why this is working, why this isn't working, why the anatomy's off. Uh, there, there are some instances where I'll, I'll have to go in and I'll have to sketch out um, mm -hmm. what the fix should be. And uh, so far, like, you know, knock on wood, I haven't had any artists like lose their mind with me, <laughs> which is great. I think for the most part they see, oh, okay, that, that makes sense. And um, they're hopefully a stronger artist on the other end of it. Um, I know I'd become a better writer as I go through the process as well. So yeah, I might be a nightmare to work with. I have no idea. <laughs> <laughs> but I mean, I guess... Uh, we're just talking about invaders there, and Marvel spent a good deal of last year marking their 80th anniversary. Mm -hmm. And to to us, sort of in the store, and we said it repeatedly in the on the podcast, invaders felt like the real realization of that 80th anniversary. You know that that was the that was the birthday cake. You know it was, yeah. you know, so a really really awesome book, and we appreciate oh, it. Thanks. What what was it that that drew you to invaders, and was it always the goal to I mean, I'm a, I'm a big Invaders fan uh, and have been for a long time, but was it always the goal to explore Namor's 
you know, over the years, Namor's constantly flip-flopped between hero and villain. And what you did in Invaders really explored that and explained it, I guess. Was that was that always the goal whenever you were... Yeah, yeah, for sure. Like, like I said earlier, I wanted to do a Namor book, um, and it kind of morphed into an Invaders book. And uh, I think it worked out to be better as a result of it, because tying in his wartime friends to that exploration, I think, really helped. Um, yeah, because I knew they were they were going to be kind of vilifying him again in uh, Jason Aaron's Avengers book, and uh, and I remember as a, as a kid I, I bought John Byrne's Namor and they had that explanation for him being bad and good. In and out of water, wasn't it? it was yeah, crazy. yeah, yeah. It was like an oxygen imbalance. Yeah, something so like that. Gave him a machine, so when he comes out of the water, he like balances his oxygen or whatever and i'm like you know it was a kind of a fun idea back then but i was like well then why is he still like this <laughs> <laughs> like it's kind of the solution that stops him from being that and you yeah. can't really have that with a character like namor you kind of need him to be able to flip-flop a little bit and so i wanted to explore yeah um the, the tricky thing with comics especially now is you want to explore a deeper theme, but um, you don't want to um, belittle um, a real-life struggle. So mm. to deal with like the idea of wartime PTSD, um, I couldn't just have it be a straight-up PTSD story, or else it's like, I don't know. There, there are real sufferers of it, and to mm-hmm. have Namor kind of go through it, make your gritty story, and then have him come through on the other end all fixed... It's like, well, that's not how it works. So, um, so I needed to kind of add in the Charles Xavier angle to it, and um, I had to marvel, marvel it up, you know. Yep. And uh, and that was fun because I also kind of knew around the time I was putting Xavier into the book for the flashbacks, I kind of knew what Hickman was planning, mm-hmm. the X Men stuff. So I felt like it lined up perfectly with. Xavier being a bit of a manipulative asshole. I mean, he's always a manipulative asshole, but hey, <laughs> maybe he's more so now. I don't know. And it was uh, it was interesting actually because uh, Invaders. One of the issues of Invaders. I remember we we spoke about it. We uh, we were reviewing it in one of the, the earlier podcasts, and it was the first it was the first time actually. Whenever you make that link, it was the first time that there was a, an acknowledgement in the wider Marvel universe that. That what Hickman Hickman was doing and 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 House of X and Project Ten was impacting on the rest of the Marvel universe. I think it was something off the cuff that yeah happens, yeah and and I and I remember we highlighted it at the time when actually this is this is impactful you know yeah with the Roxxon guy talking about yeah that's the one and it's funny I didn't even realize it at the time I'm just like you know one of the kind of the edicts at Marvel especially lately is you know it's a shared universe and it should feel that way like we should be referencing other books. Um, as you go through your stories. And so I threw that in there just as like, a, oh, yeah, of course he would know about Krakoa, so I mentioned it. And then I didn't realize it was like that was going to be a thing. Like, and then it came out because everyone was debating, like, you know, is Powers of Ten, House of X, is this the real timeline? Is this actually happening? And then, like, I think my book was the first book to be like, oh, yeah, yeah, this is happening, mm-hmm. um, which was kind of a fun accident, really. Yep, Definitely. Oh uh, yeah, I love the X Men relaunch. Yeah, oh, fantastic stuff. I think so, we're all big fans of it, aren't we? Oh yes. I, I, w- I was there at the Marvel retreat when um, 
when Hickman pitched it to the room. Because he'd, he'd been to the summit before that. That's just kind of an observer and like kind of chiming in. Um, but it wasn't very clear as to why he was there. And then the following uh, summit retreat, he pitched his whole X-Men thing. And uh, it was awesome. Because the whole room just had questions. We are like, well, what does that mean about this? What does it mean about religion or whatever? And he's like, that's a story. That's a book. That's a new title. Like... <laughs> <laughs> and 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 that's that's the vibe you want to get in a room like that where like people have questions about your story because that means you're on the right track because then readers will have questions and then you're going to need to come up with answers and um, it was a really exciting moment getting that pitch in the room. That's uh, it's kind of interesting. I've been a like a long time X Men fan and I've yeah, this is the first time I've been you know. I was pretty excited about uh, Matthew Rosenberg's run on Astonishing mm-hmm. X Men and and that, but this is the first time, I guess, in years that I've really been been really hyped about the X Men, and I think part of it is because, not to not to sidetrack this towards you know X Men and Jonathan Hickman, yeah, but yeah, it's the yeah, first yeah. time that back in the nineties, you know, you used to have the titles, you know, X Factor used to do a certain thing. They were the government team, and mm-hmm. you know, X Force were the paramilitary team, and it feels like that now. The books and the teams have purpose. Yeah, uh, yeah, rather than just being titles, you know. So, yeah, yeah, it's it's. Uh, I don't think you could have a more successful relaunch than that. Like, they've really come out of it with uh, some great titles and some great ideas. It's funny because, like, you know, the X Men office. We talk once in a while about the idea of me doing a book there, but like, I don't think it feels so fresh and so new, and they're bringing in so many great younger writers, like. I don't think I could enter into that world properly unless I had a really solid take, you know, like it'd be fun. Like I kind of got to interact with them when I was doing Fantastic Four X-Men, but, um, but yeah, I don't think they necessarily need another, you know, middle-aged white guy in the, in that mix. Cause the books that are super interesting are the ones that are um, being told by kind of younger, fresher writers. I think. Yeah. I mean, that's, that's sad that, uh, the Fantastic Four X-Men book I thought I mean really what what you did there was you took a moment from that first House of X you know yeah, that moment yeah. that weird moment between the Fantastic Four and Cyclops over Sabretooth mm-hmm. just that we just that we that we thing that he said you know about Franklin being welcome anytime and yeah. you, you seem to take that and, and run with it you know so it was yeah I love that moment and um, like well, what what happened was because I did Marvel 2 and 1 I had a great time on it, but then um, they told me they were bringing Fantastic Four back, and uh, I, I started to coordinate with Dan on like how these were going to line up, and uh, I kind of made the call like, okay, Marvel Two and One really shouldn't exist now. Like, it doesn't make a lot of sense. Like, Fantastic Four are back. You don't need two Fantastic Four books, frankly. Um, and so we we stopped that. But the editor was like, we'd like you to do more Fantastic Four. So if you have an idea, like please come to us. And I kept saying no, but the editor knows me well enough. He's like, oh, think about it. And then uh, when the X-Men pitch came in, I'm like, oh, okay. I know what I want to do. Um, so yeah, it sucked me back into Fantastic Four. Okay. Yeah, and that, that has been a tricky book just because the um, I'm dealing with two offices. So, uh, you know, I kind of have to make sure Dan Slott's good with it and Hickman's good with it, but also, like, Jordan White, the editor, Tom Brevoort, the editor, um, that I'm not stepping on any toes. So it's been a hard story to kind of negotiate, but 
they've to their credit they've given me a lot of runway to kind of make big changes in the series which people will eventually see when comics start to come out again (laughs) (laughs) so so why daredevil um what drew you to the character because um he's been one of the big sort of main titles at the store so far and it's always the one that goes at the top of my pile when i come to reading it oh cool thanks it's my favorite title at marvel not necessarily character like character might be spider-man but daredevil is my favorite title because it's the kind of book where the runs on it are either legendary or forgettable there's really no middle ground there um and uh and you can do so much with the character because Daredevil doesn't really touch too much in the Marvel Universe. Um, like, he's not an Avenger. I mean, he was for a brief period, but, like, he's not really. He's not an X-Men, Fantastic Four. He's not cosmic. You know, he's street level, but he's also just, like, you know, he's on his own. Um, and because of that, you can kind of get away with a lot more with Daredevil being maybe not a higher-tier character like Spider-Man. And so you, you can see it through all the runs. Um, I was a big Anne Nocenti fan back in the day. Um, her Daredevil run with John Romita Jr. is probably my favorite comic run because um, she just did whatever she wanted with that character. She put him in the weirdest situations and explored all these strange themes about the fragile male ego and femininity and what all this means and um, relationships and dynamics. And she, you know, she put him in hell like she, she did so many cool things that that run, and it really signified um, that that's what you can do with that character. You can do whatever you want as long as you stay true to the character itself. Um, so yeah, that, that, I really wanted to do that title, um, and it's the only time I've actually been nervous taking over a title. Like Spider-Man, like I really enjoy Spectacular Spider-Man and doing Life Story, but um, but there's been like. There have been dozens, if not hundreds, of writers who've really kind of tackled Spider-Man. And, like, you can name, like, two or three kind of really great kind of teams on Spider-Man. But for the most part, it's Spider-Man. Everyone likes Spider-Man. Like, they'll sell. Like, the books can be good. They can be not so good. You never know. But Daredevil, it's very specific, you know? Um, like, you know, you can you could, you could talk about the runs very distinctly. Like... Like, you know, talking about Wade and Samney, like, boom, that's a run. Like, Nocenti John Romita Jr., boom. You know, Bendis Maleev, you know, Brubaker Lark. Like, these are solid teams and solid runs. Um, and it's very hard to do that with uh, with all the titles at Marvel or DC. Um, so uh, I was intimidated, but um, uh, I knew I wanted to do it because I, I knew I could tell stories that were maybe a bit more adult, that maybe delved a bit more into, like, what this would really be like in the real world because Daredevil straddles that line. Like I couldn't, I couldn't spend a year telling a story about Spider-Man dealing with guilt over murdering somebody and not being Spider-Man. There's just no way. There's no way Marvel would let me. Um, There's no way like the readers would even stand for it. But Daredevil, you can do that with, you know, if I never had him put the Daredevil costume on for like three years, like provided the story was, of a good quality and the art was great. Like you could bring someone along for that ride. Um, I like that freedom with that, with that character. Sadly, the Netflix show got canceled. 
mm-hmm. like as I was taking it over. But I think that was also a little bit freeing because all of a sudden um, there were no eyes above me looking at it as, you know, potential storyline for season four, or season five. Um, so, yeah, there's there's a lot of freedom on it and, you know, a lot of uh, a lot of rope there to hang myself with if I fuck it up. <laughs> I always find with the each issue that um, it just leaves you wanting more. Is that always your plan to just want the readers to want more? Yeah, I mean, I'm, I'm trying to. I, I treat each issue in Daredevil like a chapter in a novel, like it's one big story, more so than other stuff I've worked on. Um, but uh, but you you also you need that hook at the end. You need you need you you, you want them to come back for more, right? Like, I'm a I'm a I'm a Brian K. Vaughn fan, and like, it's it's almost a cliche now, like. Every issue, why the last man ended on a splash page cliffhanger. Saiga ends on a cliffhanger. Every issue, like, um, uh, and it's a super smart way of working because, yeah, of course you want more. Uh, and and so I, I I do my best with, with Daredevil to do that to not just like end an issue and like that's it do do do. Um, yeah, because it's one long story. Hopefully. Class. Speaking. Yeah. Sorry, Vicky, go ahead. Speaking of Brian K. Vaughan, do you read all of his stuff, like uh, Why the Last Man and Saga? Yeah, yeah. Um, and more yeah. importantly, do you know when he's bringing Saga back? Please. <laughs> yeah, he, he told me, and he said it's fine for me to tell you. <laughs> I'm not the only one that wants to know this. <laughs> I, love, I love Brian so much because he's like genuinely just like the sweetest person I may have ever met in comics. Um uh, I remember I, I did an image expo a few years ago. We were signing at the same time, and the uh, the Saga hardcover just come out. The one that's just like all blue, yeah, with uh, Hazel breastfeeding, and uh, it just has Saga on it, their names, and there's nothing else on it. There's no text on the back, and it's just like the most baller move to put out a hardcover <laughs> and just be like. You see this in a bookstore? You don't know what the fuck it is. There's literally no text on there to say, you know, you know, star-crossed lovers. Like, there's nothing. It's just a breastfeeding alien baby. <laughs> the word Saga. That's it. I, just, I remember being so impressed with that when it came out in the comic shop. And so we were signed together, and I told him that. I'm like, man, that was just, like, the most baller move, just doing that with no text on it. And he was like... He's like, yeah, oh, I'm just so bad at writing that text. And the <laughs> deadline was coming, and I didn't know what to do, so we just sent it as is. I'm like, like he's just like a sweet guy, and even like just in his sweetness, he just is cooler than anyone. It's amazing. I love that book, and I love that guy. Speaking of uh, baller moves, uh, you've managed to make Stiltman in the badass. <laughs> no, no, Marco did. <laughs> okay, fair. That fair. is 100 percent Marco. Like. Uh, <laughs> No, I knew I wanted to put Stiltman in Daredevil because fuck, you know, <laughs> when else are you going to get a chance? Um, and, I, and I had I had the, the visual in mind for what the opening move is, which is like the car crash. But like when Marco sent the page and I'm just like, oh, my God, like I can't imagine doing this scene with anyone else, like no one else. Like he made that look so cool. Uh, yeah. Marco's a revelation. I, I love working with that guy. He's great. I, I I wish I wish he could be on every issue. We've been blessed with some great um, rotating artists, like uh, Jorge Fornes. It's like 
just a, a, a master storyteller. Um, but Marco is just, he's such the real deal. The only problem I have with Marco is everyone is beautiful. <laughs> just stunning. Like he just does not understand how to draw someone not attractive. Like that's my <laughs> note I ever gave them on the rendering. Like I think it was like issue one, you know, I opened with like Matt picking up a woman at a bar, bringing her home. And I described her in the script. She's like, she looks like Juliette Lewis 10 years after she was popular. Like, you know, does it give you kind of a visual? Like attractive, sure, but not super. And like the drawings he did were just this like Italian supermodel. <laughs> just no concept. And every time I want Matt to get really beaten up, he's like, like, you know, kind of John Romita Jr. style, like all puffy and stuff. Like he's just, he's still fucking super handsome. He's like a handsome man covered in blood. And I'm just like, oh, okay. So yeah. just, with it now. Maybe you need to uh, write a Baywatch comic with uh, Margot on art. Oh my God. There you go. Million dollar idea. Thank you. <laughs> Stealing that just like I stole the podcast for money idea. It's all <laughs> yours. It's all yours. Take all it from. Yeah, Mar Marco's so, the real star of that book. Speaking of great ideas, um, we all loved Spider-Man Life Story. What wow. a fantastic Awesome. Um, what I loved about it, it's like this unique idea. It's just like looking at the Marvel Universe, but twisting it just this little bit. Um, but the thing I love most those covers, man, they were oh. fantastic. Oh, where, did, where did the idea or the inspiration for them come from? Uh, well, I wanted them to really stand out as something different on on the stand, um, so to, to make them quite graphic. And, uh, and yeah, I kept playing around with kind of different shapes and color ideas, but um, it, I kind of just realized at one point, like, this is my one chance to kind of use my illustration background because in, in school for illustration, they basically teach you to kind of like come up with conceptual ideas for images, um, which is usually combining elements and coming up with new ways of looking at things. And so with that, um, I think the first one I had in mind was the, uh, the, um, the Green Goblin pumpkin bomb disco ball for the 70s. Yeah. Nice. Like, as soon as I had that, I'm like, oh, okay, now I know what these have to look like. They have to be super simple, really graphic. Um, and because it's a limited series, like um, you can you can have a, a palette for each one without um, getting repetitive. Um, we've talked about the idea of doing more of these, but uh, and I want to do the covers for them, but I'm also like, ah, but like it'll be really hard to do it again. Like if we did like the Hulk uh like coming up with covers that looked wildly different from the spider-man ones like i think we were blessed with the fact that it was only six issues which kind of gives you a lot more freedom to kind of like go all in with a specific idea um mm -hmm. won't wear out as welcome um yeah yeah, yeah I, was, I was happy they let me do the covers i, I think partly because it was like a one-off project and it was only six issues they're like yeah fuck it let chip do the covers <laughs> see what happens <laughs> Yeah, the, um, the Captain America, the, the issue five um, for September 11th, um, that was the one that I was probably the most worried about just because I was evoking the images of the Twin Towers. But, like, I, don't, I, didn't, I couldn't recall if anyone had done that before with the Captain America stripes. Like, it, it felt like a thing that maybe had been done, so it was, I was 
I was worried I was going to put that out there and everybody be like, oh, that's just like this cover from like 2003. I'm like, shit. <laughs> <laughs> I, mean, uh, I mean, I'm going to echo what Ronnie said. Life Story was just, just, it was absolutely fantastic. It was, I mean, awesome. uh, my heart, like it just, there was tears, tears, and no more. Yes. <laughs> but, but uh, you know, and it's, it's funny because I mean, I've chatted to the guys, you know, they think it's hilarious. I've chatted to the guys a bit about Elastic Time in Marvel. You know, when yeah. how, you know, as, can, as, can you confirm if this is a real concept at Marvel Chip, please? Elastic Time. Okay, well, you define what Elastic Time is for me <laughs> before I answer. So, you know, to my mind, and I, I can't remember where I read this, but, uh, you know, the idea that, you know, obviously time passes at a different rate. You know, mm-hmm. comic to comic and series to series and it does in the real world. So Peter Parker, you know, was a was a sixteen year old in nineteen sixty or whatever and you know, yep. by the eighties he was at, you know, he had left high he was in high school and he was you know, so so obviously it has to be a wee bit more elastic, it has to expand and contract and you get different periods in between different you know, so Yeah. yeah. within Marvel they call it the sliding timeline. Because because events have to change um, as things move on, like Tony Stark couldn't have been injured in the Korean War, so now it's Afghanistan, and at some point it just kind of happens. Like you just kind of like you mention it, but you don't really like focus on it too much. Um, you know, obviously Marvel was a victim of their own success, because when they started the comics, you know, it was amazing. Like Peter Parker aged, like he was like 15, a dork, and then you know by the time he got up to like John Romita, and he's like this college hunk. On his motorcycle, um, I, people found that really refreshing. But at some point, someone at Marvel rightly just thought, "What the fuck are we doing here? Like this guy's going to be like fifty, you know, in like a couple of decades, and like we're not going to tell stories about a fifty-year-old Spider-Man. <laughs> like no one's going to buy that. These kids aren't going to buy that. Um, so they they froze it at a certain point. So it became the kind of thing where yeah, it's like elastic. You're right. Like you know, Reed and Sue had a baby. And like, what the fuck do you do then? So they basically aged him up till he was like four and a half, and he wore the four and a half shirt for like twenty years. And um, now they're teenagers through, you know, yeah. through mm-hmm. other storytelling means. Um, yeah, it's, it's 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 kind of an imperative um, to to make sure that these characters don't like age out completely. The downside to that is it doesn't allow younger characters to mature into those roles. So like Kamala Khan, she's she's like 16 or whatever in their book, like because Peter Parker's like 27, 28, like Kamala Khan's never going to get to be 27, 28 now unless they do a thing like oh she goes off into another universe and she comes back. Um, so that that's unfortunate. It kind of keeps younger characters forever younger uh, instead of kind of kind of hitting the point where like you know the champions become the Avengers, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, I've had discussions with Marvel over the years about that concept and like how we can kind of like mess with it. Um, Spider-Man Life Story is kind of my gent- gently feeling that out a little bit to see what kind of stories we could tell as the characters age. Um, so we'll see. I Originally, Life Story was, I pitched it to them as a maxi series, like 12 issues about the Marvel Universe, not about Spider-Man. Um uh, and then, you know, the, the editor, Tom Brevoort, rightly said, like, well, that's crazy. You can't cover all of it and mm-hmm. you need a focus. So let's do Spider-Man and let's do six issues. 
he was correct. Like I, I was overreaching there. I don't think it would have been a good story if I attempted it that way. But I think there is something there in telling the story of the Marvel Universe through uh, through real time. Um, the danger is, again, the characters get too old. But the nice uh, revitalizing thing is that the younger characters become the main characters. Mm. And then you can bring in more younger characters. You know, Marvel might end up with a, with a problem in like 10 years where they have like um, 70 uh, teenage superheroes. And they'll have to figure out ways to change that in Teenage Massacre coming in 2039 <laughs> from Marvel Comics. <laughs> um, what was it like working with a legend like Mark Bagley? I mean, that guy. I had nightmares, literal nightmares, because he's so fucking fast. Like, um, and he came onto the project. Basically, the editor said, you know, if we want this to come out on time, these are 30-page issues. Um, we're going to bring in Bagley. I'm like, okay, great, sure. And when, when Mark came on board, he's like, oh, you know, I feel like I'm starting behind. Um, so uh, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to work a bit faster. I'm like, faster? What does that mean? It means two pages a day. Like, so two pages a day of pencils, full pencils were coming into the inbox. And I was like, fuck, I need to write fast. <laughs> like, like all of a sudden, because it's a complex story too. And so the scripts would take a lot longer than a standard script because you have to really figure out the whole world. Um, so that was a really intense period. Um, trying just to keep up with Bagley. Mm. And it's so cool. Like getting, getting pages in from Mark Bagley with Spider-Man on them, knowing that that exists because you wrote the scene is, uh, is really fucking weird. It's really weird. And just like texting him and like going back and forth. And, you know, it's a very hard thing to request a change of Mark Bagley. <laughs> like, you know, the teenage part of me just like, no, don't do it. Don't do it. He's a legend. And I'd be like, hey, maybe, maybe he should look angrier here. <laughs> I'd be like, okay. And then 20 minutes later, it's done. I'm like, the, the Mark Bagley, like he's a machine. Like he's, he's unbelievable. Um, yeah. Like, I felt bad because the story is very um, – because there's so much that happens and so much we need to cover, the pages were really dense. Like five, six panels were kind of the regular, the norm. Very rare that I give them a splash page. And if I did, it's like a two-page splash where there's 30 characters on it. Um, so I genuinely felt bad during the process of how much uh, I was putting into the scripts. But uh, he's such a professional. He – he did it. He was jovial about it. And um, I think he's happy with the final product as well. Um, it's nice to be able to do a self-contained Spider-Man story and just like have that on the shelf. Like it just, it just feels nice. And I think maybe I'm hoping he feels that way too, to have like, you know, after all his years doing amazing and an ultimate Spider-Man to be able to come back and do another thing that from what I understand is like, a, a really decent seller in bookstores and is probably going to be for a while because it's its own thing. It has a distinct look to it and to have Bagley's name on it. Um, I think, I think it helps everyone, you know, and I'm, I'm hoping that he feels the same way. I think, uh, I think we can safely say that that's the case. Um, I was lucky enough one, uh, one weekend that, uh, Alan and Vicky were, were, were out of the store and I was minding the store and that book just flew off the shelves that day. Flew oh. off the shelves. <laughs> you're, you're making it sound, Keith, like I don't sell it unless you're there. Yeah, yeah. 
They were just sitting there in a box behind the counter, just gathering Mark, dust. do not what? sell. Yeah, but you were the one with the idea to open that box and put them up for sale. Thanks for that, Keith. Appreciate that. Uh, Marvel, was, Marvel was really, uh, they were great about that as well. Like, they let me design the, the trade, the collection. Because um, I think, I really want people to be able to see that from across the room and just see that Spider-Man profile and be like, oh, shit. Who's this who, cool new character? <laughs> and, you know, and, and pick it up because it looks distinct from maybe a lot of the other trades that are coming out. Are there any plans to maybe use Life Story as a banner? I know you said there's a lot of intricacies, certainly. Well, one of the things I loved about it was the constant curiosity of seeing where other characters were, you know, 10 years later, 20 years later, you know, Cap comes into the story, Iron Man comes into the story. And I, I love the idea that, you know, of having that all interconnected and say doing, an, <clears throat> pardon me, doing a Captain America life story, for example, where you see how he comes into Spider-Man life story, if, if that makes sense. Yeah. And um, we immediately kind of started talking about that idea about doing like a Captain America life story, Iron Man life story. Um, it's frankly too much work um, uh, to do it like to do Spider-Man Life Story, I reread all of Amazing Spider-Man up to issue 800. Um, just so I can make sure that I was hitting the beats I needed to hit. Um, and I had to plan out kind of a, a world history timeline. I had to plan out a timeline of every character based on their first appearance, where they would age to. Um, it, it's inc it was incredibly complex to write, to be able to come up with like a, one story that hit upon all these other stories and worked right to do another one would just take a lot of time i i'm not saying i'd never do it but um but it would be super super tricky i probably have to do it with with mark again um because i also don't think it's fair to another artist to to bring them in when so much of the world was already designed by bagley yeah like you know iron man shows up in Spider-Man life story that means in my I, Iron Man life story, we've got to hit to that point and the characters have to kind of look the way they look. Um, I, I've suggested that they do it with other creators um, and to do it and to do it without the limitation where if you did a Hulk life story, maybe the world blows up from a gamma bomb in the seventies or whatever. Like it doesn't tie into the Spider-Man life story becomes its own universe. Mm -hmm. um, I would love to read that. I think, I think it's a good opportunity to put like kind of like some of their top creators. that want to tell stories are kind of like um, outside of the normal continuity um, because a lot of creators really want to do that. Like they, we love continuity, but to be able to kind of create your own world is um, really satisfying. Yeah. So I, I don't know, like um, before pandemic, I was talking to them a bit about little one shots and things that kind of like play with this universe. Um, so maybe we'll do that at some point. I, I can't imagine them not doing it like in a year or two. Um, I might not even know about it. They might be doing it. I don't even know because, you know, hey, it's out of my hands at this point. Um, if that's the case, I'm like, great. Like, I want to see more of them. Yeah. That's part of the joy too. Like, um, I like doing things in the Marvel books and seeing other people pick up those threads. Uh, and this is one of those things where if they did like four or five of these, 
with other creators, like in my heart, I'd be like, it's amazing. Like everyone got jobs out of this. (laughs) (laughs) I'm a job, I'm a job creator. It's great. If I was living in a trailer park, then maybe I'd think differently. I'd be like, damn you, Marvel, why didn't you call me? But at this stage, I'd, I'd just be super happy to see them do more of them. Um, yeah, I mean, how do you how do you find writing multiple titles for the same company? You know, do you find it easy to, you know, jump from Daredevil to Invaders to um, Life Story? Or is it a, like, do you set aside one day for one title? Or do you work on multiple titles in the same day? Or, you know, how's that creative process? It's usually the fire that burns the brightest that needs to be put out. Um, so depending on the deadline. Um, the, the, the weird thing with writing books for Marvel that I didn't realize when I started was that you're actually involved in the process to such a large degree that um, you're kind of working on, it, working on it all the time. Because like you pitch the writer the idea for the story, or like the arc, whatever. Um, you write the script... You do the edits, the layouts come in, you give notes on those, the pencils come in, you give notes on those, colors, notes again. Um, you get another chance to rewrite the script um, after the art's in, before it goes to the letterer, in case like the balloons don't match up, faces don't match up. Uh, and then you have another pass when the letters and the colors in. So there's like seven or eight stages where you're actively working on the book. Um, and so if you're working on three titles at a time, like a, in a standard week, I'll be writing one of those titles. It'll take three or four days to write uh, write an issue. But in between that, I'm giving notes on the other books. So you're kind of always in the headspace of all the books all, all the time. Um, so yeah, I, I like it because it kind of keeps things fresh. Like currently right now, you know, I've got a, I've got a bunch of creator-owned stuff that I'm working on, um, and uh, and a few other kind of like paying gigs that aren't Marvel, but uh, I'm only doing Daredevil for Marvel right now, so it's giving me a real focus, but also maybe too much of a focus. Like I kind of I kind of miss like doing the Spider-Man thing over there, or like an Avengers or Fantastic Four or whatever. Like um, just to kind of balance that out a little bit. Um, cause it's kind of nice to be able to change tone, but if you just get mired in one book, um, uh, it can really mess with your head a little bit, especially daredevil. Cause I'm trying to do a darker, more serious title. So, um, I don't know if my wife appreciates me being dark and serious during this period of <laughs> pandemic. But... Pays the bills. Yeah, I guess. <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, there, there was something you mentioned earlier on, um, Marvel two and one. Mm-hmm. And uh, I mean, certainly, certainly in the store, and uh, it looked like it looked like you were a real shame to to write Fantastic Four whenever I come back. And I mean, dance lot is dance lot, but you know, we speculated that on that in the store for quite some time that you know Chip's going to be on 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 Fantastic Four. Was that ever in the cards, or was it? No, no, and I never expected it either because it's funny when when they announced Dan on it, like I'd already known about it, obviously. And then I got a lot of people saying that, like, you know, you you make the most sense to go do this. I'm like, from a sales and marketing standpoint, like just from a crass, like salesmanship uh, point of view, it makes no sense. You don't take the guy who's writing half the Fantastic Four, you know, to OK Sales mm-hmm. and then put him on the biggest relaunch of Fantastic Four. 
because you, you already know how I write Fantastic Four. Like, there's no big surprise there. Taking Dan from Amazing Spider-Man from doing a 10-year legendary run and then putting him on FF, people be like, well, what is his, what, what's his take going to be? What's his FF going to be like? Like, it's a huge hook. It's a massive hook. Yeah. Whereas with me, you know kind of exactly what you're going to get because I was literally doing Marvel 2-in-1 up until the month that Fantastic Four came out and then two months after that. So uh, I never expected anything. Um, uh, it was actually kind of helpful to have some pressure taken off as well. Because uh, like, when I found out, like, there were only like four of us that knew, like in the world, that this was happening. Yeah. And like uh, when I was in New York, I got pulled into a side room and um, my editor was like, this is top secret. Dan Slott's coming in, taking over FF. We're bringing FF back. I'm like, that's amazing. And then we had like a side meeting with Dan where he told me everything that was going to be coming up so I could kind of figure out what I should or shouldn't do um, in Marvel 2 and 1 kind of leading up to that. Um, so it was great. It took the pressure off me. It, it made it easier for me to figure out how I was going to dismount and end the book because um, I had I, I got the gift of having like Reed and Sue in the last two issues as mm-hmm. the other two in the two and one. And, uh, and that was a ton of fun and like I'm super grateful for it. And again, like Fantastic Four X-Men, you know, came up and uh, or I pitched it. And uh, and that's been great. Doesn't kind of scratch the FF itch as well. Mm. Yeah, maybe maybe one day down the line I'll write the main title, but uh, but I'm pretty happy with how Marvel Two and One turned out. Like uh, being able to write not only Johnny and Ben um, at that kind of period of their lives, but also um, Doom in that Bendis uh, infamous Iron Man role was like super fun, super fun. And uh, yeah, yeah, I loved it. Yeah, you de- you definitely seem to have a bit of a love for Fantastic Four. Obviously, you did that Doom twenty ninety nine one shot as well. Yeah, which yeah. was a lot of fun. Yeah, I had to jump at that for sure. Um, yeah. but um, obviously, you're a massive part of Marvel, and exclusive contracts are very much a thing these days. But obviously, being a big DC fan, I have to ask. You know, do you have any itch to work on some DC characters? I mean. I've read interviews, for example, with Scott Schneider, obviously tied to DC, but he says he has a killer Hulk story in his arsenal. Uh, I know Donny Cates has said um, he has a killer Green Lantern idea. Is is there anything bubbling around in your head that, you know, if it happens? Because I see you as a Hellblazer guy, I have to say. Okay. I love Hellblazer. I fucking love Hellblazer. Like, um, the Garth Ennis run is, like, one of my favorite books. Like, in high school, like that hooked me, that hooked me really hard. And I went back and got all the previous, um, Constantine appearances. Um, okay. There's a couple of things I'm going to say about this just to clear up some things. <laughs> I am not Marvel exclusive. Oh, okay. That con that contract came up and I signed another contract with Marvel where I'm, I'm not exclusive. Um, cause you know, I don't like to be tied down. Um, and there were a bunch of reasons for it. It wasn't like, oh, I gotta get over DC. That that wasn't wasn't really it. But um, in terms of characters I'd want to work on, I always feel weird saying it because somewhere out there is somebody writing that book, and like, God bless Scott Snyder, but I'm sure Al Ewing doesn't like hearing that Scott Snyder's got a killer Hulk <laughs> idea. <laughs> well, he would. In fairness, it would have to be a really killer idea to top. What Al Ewing is doing. 
Yeah, yeah. Like I know certain creators that will like will tell other creators to their face that they want their book. Oh, really? And like, like, yeah. There's there's some people with a lack of self awareness about that kind of thing. And not saying that like Scott or Donnie are, are those guys. Like I think we've all got uh, ideas for characters kind of in the back of our heads. Mm-hmm. Uh, I don't. I genuinely don't. Um, I like to, if I get offered a book, um, that's the point where I stop and I think about what do I have to say with this character. Um, I don't actually spend a lot of time kind of like ruminating about books that I don't have because my focus is always on the books that I have, if that makes sense. Yeah, that's fair. Um, I know some people have like ideas they have kicking around since they're in high school and they can't wait to put them on the page. And I've forgotten all those. I'm sure I did at some point have like a Spider-Man idea from when I was like 15. Um, maybe I should have written them down, but I think whatever I come up with when it's presented to me is going to be better than anything that I kind of have in my back pocket because it will relate more closely to what's happening now and the story I want to tell right now. Um, so yeah. Um, all that being said, I guess Batman. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Don't get my hopes up. Don't get my hopes up. (laughs) No, yeah. I mean, again, you know, I, I grew up on DC comics as well via my brother's collection and, uh, and yeah, yeah. I'd love to do work on DC books for sure. Well, um, you've been extremely generous with your time, um, really engaging, really cool to chat to. We've just got a couple of small questions just and then yeah, we'll, we'll, we'll finish up with it. Um, I'll let I Rod- want to thank you guys too for uh, donating to the CLLDF uh, to help Canadian retailers. No, so that, much appreciated. That's a pleasure. Absolute pleasure. Um, but yeah, they're sort of just quick one-off sort of quick questions, but uh, I'll let Roddy lead with his first. <clears throat> All right. Um, simple. What's favorite indie series of all time? Ooh, of all time. God, that's that's a tough one. Series series is the the part I get hung up on a little bit, just because um, that implies kind of like an ongoing thing. Oh, it could be a six issue mini series. It could be a sixty issue epic. It yeah. could be a one shot. Oh, I actually got to look at my shelf. <laughs> Massively put you on the spot here. You going to like the next two questions then? <laughs> I wonder what they could be. Yeah, it's tricky. Like most of my friends work in Image, and I follow all of their work. Like Wicked and Divine is definitely vying for top spot. It's so hard to call these indie. Like, you know. Yeah, it's it's the broad. Like, yeah, the I want to say, I wanna say so- Saga, but like. Yeah, Sega's old sold everything. Yeah. Like it's like Walking Dead's my favorite indie. Like you can't do that. Um. Yeah, series is tricky. Yeah, it's mostly just graphic novels that I kind of gravitate towards. Um. Uh, the Tamaki's like. Uh, Skim. And uh, this one summer are just gorgeous, perfect graphic novels. Um, Guy Delisle's Hostage, um, I was pretty fixated on a couple years ago. Uh, yeah, what else? I think uh, coming out of Image, Southern Bastards is probably the one that I always look forward to the most. Yeah, Southern Bastards is a bit of a sore spot for me because 
I absolutely adore Southern Bastards. And then mm-hmm. Jason Aaron left us hanging and went off to write Thor and be absolutely brilliant at it. But can you please come back to Southern Bastards and you know tell yeah, us some more story? I, I I've talked to both Jasons about that. Like, it's uh, it's one of the best books ever, and it kind of needs to come out. The, the the thing is, like, I think they're in the same situation that Matt and I were in. Like, I think Jason Latour is very deliberate. He really thinks through stuff, and but he's also kind of he's got other things kind of going on as well. Like. You know, he wrote and drew that Silver Surfer special that um, I was a part of. Um, not to mention the Spider-Verse stuff and writing Spider-Gwen. Like, he's got a lot going on, and he really thinks about it and, like, spends his time on Southern Bastards, but it also gives Jason Aaron the opportunity to not necessarily focus on it mm-hmm. because Latour's not necessarily done with what he's got to do, either on that book or with other books. So they kind of they give each other too much leeway, probably. Um, and yeah, like on sex criminals, like I totally get that feeling. Um, but yeah, but I, I want to read more of it, so I, I totally feel your pain. <laughs> so uh, I guess uh, I guess you know with regard to the Marvel, what's your favorite moment or run there? Um, like the current, or sure. just yours, just yours, whatever whatever you prefer. So sorry, series or uh, issue? Just, just run or, or moment or, or issue, whatever, whatever, just stand out. Run, it's a tie for me between the previous uh, Anna Senti, John Romita Jr. Daredevil run or uh, Walt Simonson on Fantastic Four. Perfect. But the Simonson Fantastic Four is, is one of those ones where not a lot of people kind of remember it. Um, but it's it's... It's perfect Fantastic Four books. It's so wild and crazy and giant and time travel and Galactus and dinosaurs and like robot Stalin. Like there's so much in it. Uh, And it also has the most inventive issue of all time, which is Fantastic Four number 352, which um, does an amazing time thing where you have to flip back and forth between pages because there's a battle in time. It, it's it's really really it's gotcha. so well done. Um, I, I recommend it to anyone. Um, yeah, yeah, and the single issue is super hard. But uh, I'm, I'm I'm happy with that, Chip. I'm happy with that that uh, that time thing you you're, you're talking about. I read something very very similar recently. Was uh, I don't know if you ever read uh, Jonathan Hickman's run on Shield. Mm-hmm. Uh, and uh, at the end of the the end of the second. Uh, second series there's this jumping three three periods of time and i find myself flicking back and forth and you know and whether yeah, well, this this fantastic four issue is, is structured in such a way where on the left hand side of the page it's time as it proceeds and on the right hand side it's doom and read um fighting in time so there's time codes like at the end of that page it'll be like you know 10 o'clock and you'll have to flip to the page of real time 10 o'clock to follow their story but there's an amazing part where um doom blasts at reed and reed like stops it and uh and the time codes is like at 8 35 and then it's revealed that the cover is reed sending that blast to the cover to break reed out of prison to start the story 
Like it's, it's it's like that kind of like wow. There's so many weird layers to it, and it's beautifully drawn because it's Simonson. Um, yeah, I love that issue so much. And there's in the Nascenti John Romita Jr. run, um, there's a Daredevil issue uh, where Daredevil's not in it. It's Daredevil's like beaten and he's like missing, and so Johnny Storm decides to be the defender of Hell's Kitchen, and he walks into a bar. And he's dressed in like shades and a tight black shirt that says bad on it. Uh, yes, yes. And he walks in trying to be super cool and everyone's just like <laughs> laughing at him. And they, you know, he has to take on a guy in a fist fight and he tries not to use his flame. But even after he wins the fight and they're all like, yeah, we're going to beat you up anyways. He like gets angry and he flames on and he burns down the bar. <laughs> and it's such a good issue. It's like, oh, it's so well done. <laughs> And it's like it's a masterclass in storytelling, and also um, uh, that run really highlights uh, Al Williamson, who inked it, and uh, it's just a classic artist. And his inking on that is, uh, I think, is the best John Romita Jr.'s work has ever looked. Like I, I like I like when you know he teams up with like guys like Jansen, but like the Williamson inks are just like really really nice. I think you maybe convinced us all to look into that run. It's, it's a solid run. Yeah, I mean, you spoke about that issue with great passion when I was fortunate enough to chat to you last week. And you can see your influence on me because at 2.30 in the morning, I for us, I sourced that issue. And it's now on its way to me. Uh, <laughs> oh, right. Issue okay. 261. So I'll, uh, yeah. I'll, I'll hit you up when I'm incredibly disappointed when I inevitably read it. Um, <laughs> well, yeah, You'll I mean... You'll love it. You'll love it. <laughs> Well, I'm a big Daredevil guy anyway. Daredevil and Silver Surfer are my personal two favorites. So, well, you, you should you got to read that run because Silver Surfer shows up. Yeah, there's it's so crazy. Like there's a there's an arc where Daredevil goes to hell with Karnak and Gorgon of the Inhumans, and like uh, and some other kind of like new characters, and. Uh, there's a scene where, like, Mephisto, it's the first time Mephisto is drawn as, like, this giant, bulbous, disgusting creature. There's, like, a two-page spread of Daredevil, like, walking out of hell, like, like not looking at the devil, like, I reject the devil, as Silver Surfer comes in to fight <laughs> Mephisto in a battle that human eyes should not be seeing. Like, <laughs> it's so crazy. And it's a Daredevil, right? Like, it's, like, you know, street-level, gritty Daredevil, and it works. Because it's all about his Catholicism and... Uh, it's it's really great. I'll, I'm sure once this issue arrives, that'll have me searching out the uh, the collected editions, uh, and then I'm sure you can probably guess what the third question then is. You know, we've covered indie, we've covered Marvel. Any DC titles that really stick out with you as classics or classic issues or runs or mini series? Uh, I mean, DC's got the um, advantage over Marvel in the uh, uh, collections. I think. Like Batman Year One is the best Batman story. It's one of the best superhero stories. You know, its only rival is actually Daredevil: Born Again. I, I, I'd say, I'd say, I'd say those two are the like the best um, uh, single stories that Marvel and DC have done. Kind of about what it takes to be a hero, right? Because mm -hmm. they're both essentially origin stories. Like Born Again is Matt Murdock building himself back up, and uh, and. Uh, Batman Year One is obviously Bruce Wayne, like trying to figure out becoming Batman. Um, but they're so well done. They're so well done, and the same teams, obviously. Um, yeah, between that and like Dark Knight and Watchmen, like 
DC's got it pretty good for kind of collected perennials. Um, I will say that um, my favorite run at DC was the uh, Justice League International, given De Matisse, uh Kevin Maguire art. Uh, I love that run so much. Like it's it's there's so much heart and humor in it, and it really kind of taught me one of my you know, cliche tricks that I, I use, which is the jokey light book. When it gets serious, it's really fucking serious. And it really takes you by surprise and it really kind of hits you. Like there, there are scenes in that justice league run that are um, darker and more terrifying than in any kind of horror book that you wouldn't read. And uh, it's a testament to how much they build the characters in that justice league run. Um, as kind of people that you love um, to actually pull that off. It's, I don't know if any of you guys have read it. Like it's, no, it's no. spectacular. It's super funny. Like, you know, the first issue is like, I've got the classic, you know, Batman punching out guy Gardner, single panel. Um, and uh, it's, it's, it's just a disarming uh, book and, uh, and then really well done. Um, but yeah, I just want to say thanks again, Chip. It's been an absolute pleasure. Uh, we could easily keep you going for another couple of hours, but you know, even though we have all the time in the world, we don't think that's particularly fair. So you've been very generous with your time. Cheers for answering everything. Um, you know, we, we, we genuinely are fans. We genuinely do love the work you do. And there's, there's certain things that I always keep in the shelf in, in Coffee and Heroes that Daredevil runs one of them. Life stories, another sex criminals is another. And you know, I, I always give the advice to people in the store, don't follow titles, follow creators. If you find a creator you enjoy, follow their work. Don't necessarily just read Spider-Man or just read Batman. You know, follow those creators and, and you're one of the guys we push. So big fans, you know, keep it up. That's, 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 it's funny you say that because uh, I was talking recently to somebody, uh, I think when we were talking before, that uh, I kind of fucked myself a little bit with that because like, I'm doing things like Jughead and then Daredevil and then Howard the Duck and then Sex Criminals. It's like <laughs> the idea of there being a Chip Zdarsky fan kind of blows my mind because like I'm a moron that just does a bunch of like random stuff. And <laughs> so I feel sorry for the people that kind of have to like, well, you know, I don't really like dark, gritty comics, but I guess I'll buy Jughead. We, we, we call that versatility. Versatility. Yeah. Yeah, we'll see. We'll see how that works with the rest of my career. <laughs> well, may it be a long and fruitful one. Uh, thanks again, yeah. Chip. It's been an absolute pleasure. Yeah. Yeah, thanks cheers. for having me, guys. So Thank you very Love much. Thank you. Yeah. Stay safe. All right. I'm all right.